Hello and welcome to Biopod, the official podcast from the School of Biological Sciences here at the University of Edinburgh. I'm your host, Christian Donahoe, and today we're talking about evolutionary biology through the eyes of the burying beetle. We have experts and current PhD students, Casey Patmore and Georgia Lambert, here with us. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Hello. <laughs> Hello. Excellent. So what are you both working on at the moment? Um, so I am working on so state-dependent uh, interactions in the bearing beetle. So I look at how uh, parental care changes with interspecific competition. So the beetles that we work on, they like to feed on and breed on like dead vertebrate carcasses in the wild. And I, uh, I introduce sort of uh, other sort of insect competitors like blowflies who are uh, interested in the same resources and see how that kind of modifies the way that the uh, parents sort of provide their care to their offspring. Um, yeah, I'm also looking at how aspects of state affect how the parents um, cooperate with each other, but I'm looking at more like physical states, so Casey's looking kind of at stress with competitors, whereas I'm looking at things like how malnutrition affects how the beetles cooperate with each other. Okay, so you're seeing uh, in different aspects how beetles compare with uh, with uh, negative factors affecting the raising their offspring or growth itself. Pretty much, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, we, I mean, obviously, we know that the beetles are a good model for studying sort of biparental care, and we're just kind of in there experimentally stress testing that system to see yeah. what changes what. Stress, that was the word. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, but not necessarily stress because uh, so we're interested in how aspects of state affect cooperation but that could also be something like the size of a beetle which isn't necessarily related to stress. So yeah, multiple different things. State can mean a lot of things. (laughs) Okay, so I mean what field of research is this? This, Because this feels somewhere between like the classical areas like zoology because you're studying an animal but Mm -hmm. biology because you're looking at more than just the animal itself, right? Uh, yeah, I think we'd call ourselves behavioural ecologists, yeah, if you'd agree. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. yeah that's then generally where we sit, behavioural ecology. Yeah. Animal behaviour, I suppose, as well. Yeah, one that we and have. a bit of evolutionary biology as well, I guess. Yeah, dance around quite a few sort of key topics, I guess. Yeah. What be the phrase your parents call you? <laughs> Scientist. <laughs> they don't, I don't think they understand. General biologist. I'm training them though. They've started saying behavioural ecologist. Yeah. I think mine t- my parents still tell me I work with trees. I don't. Uh, <laughs> not my research. How did you get into the ecology of in- into this field? Because it's not something you typically hear about at school or it's one of the subjects you're ex- exposed to. Yeah, so I was a little bit confused when I was deciding what I wanted to do at university. I kind of, I was convinced I wanted to do neuroscience, but I think I was just interested in what turned out to be animal behaviour, but I didn't know that's what it was called at the time, so I just thought it was something along the lines of neuroscience, which would be another avenue into it, but um, I found that going from an ecology standpoint was more my general route into it. Yeah, I just like watching animals do weird things, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) That's what YouTube's for. Yeah, yeah, I suppose it was a a surprise, I suppose, to find out that you could work on this, because... um, I, I came from a, a small sort of town where the the, uh, the highest high of sort of like science was just medicine. That was all people spoke about. So I didn't even know you could study like animals at all uh, outside of like medicine or veterinary. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of just accidentally wound up in it after I'd started university. I started in ag science and then transferred across because I realized 
there's a whole field and people are actually doing interesting stuff here and you can actually make a career out of it. Well, strange. <laughs> Lovely. Uh, do you need any additional training then to be working with uh, animals for your research compared to, say, a wet lab job? Um, so the beetles are pretty... You can you don't need much training to work with the beetles. You need to generally learn how they work and stuff like that. You need to kind of... Every time you change the study species you work in, it takes a little while to adjust, I find. Um, but it's a lot simpler than, say, working with birds or mammals when you might need a lot more, like, licenses. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, as with everything, those are burning period, right? So, yeah, it's not necessarily transferable skills, I guess, but mm. stuff that you learn quite quickly, like how to sex the beetles, what their life's history is kind of going to be like so you know how to organize yourself around what they're doing what they're not doing yeah okay so what's sexing a beetle oh sorry um so just being able to figure out whether or not it's a male or a female beetle that you're handling because okay. obviously once we go to breed them and set up our experiments quite important to know that little detail yeah it's a shame not color-coded <laughs> <laughs> okay so let's talk about your research a bit more detail so you've mentioned the beetle a few times what is this species and why are you studying it uh, so it's called the bearing beetle, uh, Necropterus vespaloides. It's one of the few sort of bearing beetles that we find here in the UK. They're in like the sylphid family. Um, and in nature, they're sort of like, uh, they're associated with carrion um, quite a lot because they, like I said earlier, they like to breed and uh, feed off of that carrion resource. And so they've become quite popular, I think, as a model for biparental care because um, if you think about the whole sort of dynamic system that they're like experiencing out in out in wild, uh, there's like a there's like a big emphasis, I suppose, on cooperation for them because a lot of things are interested in carrion. It's not just the beetles, so they've sort of become this standard for looking at biparental care because they're a lot easier to work with than say mammals or birds, like Georgia was saying, because uh, they're insects. You can do a lot more with them. You can do a lot quicker with them. <laughs> so, could one of you tell me what is the burying beetle uh, reproductive cycle, the life cycle of one? Um, okay, so in terms of timeline, we normally set up a breeding attempt on a Friday, um, and then that will take about um, maybe 48 hours to start laying eggs, and they'll also prepare the carcass, so that involves um, removing all of the hair, um, rolling it into a ball, and then normally they bury it in the ground, which is why they're called a burying beetle, but we don't normally give them enough soil to do that, because that would screw up our observations. <laughs> um, so that takes about 48 hours, and then um, after that the larvae start to hatch, and they start moving towards the carcass, and they'll feed on the carcass, and the parents will provide parental care, um, and that lasts for about a week-ish and then the larvae will start dispersing from the carcass um, and by this point the parents have stopped providing care the male has probably flown away the <laughs> female might also have flown away um, and so then the larvae will disperse um, they'll go into the soil to pupate and then they'll come out as um, adult beetles in about three weeks later so the whole cycle takes roughly a month Okay, and how long is the lifespan of the beetle you work with? Well, it depends on who you're asking. Yeah. <laughs> From us, I think they don't last much longer than 40, 50 days because we're doing experiments that we kind of go through them that quickly so we don't see them to their natural lifespan. Because um, of all the stress they get given. Perhaps, yeah. but um, there is someone in our lab who actually works on the ageing of bearing beetles, Ken and Delaney, um, and he could probably tell you a hell of a lot more about it than we could. Um, I think his maximum, he had a beetle that lived for about... 200 days maybe 250 but that was that was wow. extraordinary i don't think that would be 
common at all. It's a really long grey bearded beetle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it varies quite a lot, I've found. It can be anything from like, I don't know, two weeks to 80 days sometimes. Um, but I think it's hard to know what will happen in the wild because it's obviously quite easy to monitor how long they live in a lab, but it's difficult to follow a beetle around in the wild. So I think that's probably where the uncertainty comes from. Yeah. Uh, how do you tell individual beetles apart? Or do you not bother? Uh, we keep them in, each beetle has their own box. I think Kinnan's doing some work on being able to recognise them by the patterns on their elytra, but I, I don't know that much about it. Um, so we just, we keep them in separate boxes and they each have separate labels of our fairly complicated naming system. <laughs> okay, excellent. Well, I've got some notes on the, the research you've been doing and what it says here is you're looking at the varying state of reproduction. So you've mentioned looking at different stresses. What do you think each of your projects will prove about the reproductive of the beetle and how would that apply to uh, other scientific theories? Um, so we're specifically, we're trying to build upon um, an area of research which basically looks at um, parental cooperation. So this is based on the idea that there's um, conflict between males and females over how much care they should contribute towards their joint offspring because the benefits of providing care, so the quality of the offspring being produced is joint, so both parents benefit from that, but the costs are paid individually, so the time and effort that the parents put in is separate. So they, each parent wants to put in as little effort as possible, but they still want the offspring to survive and be of decent quality. So it's basically looking at how this conflict is resolved and how the parents work together. Um, and the body of research at the moment is focused on um, how parents respond to the behaviour of their partner. So if their partner is providing more or less care, how they choose to respond to that. So they may respond by um, matching their partner and providing the same level of care. Um, they may respond by doing something called negotiation. So if their partner is providing less care, they may provide more care to compensate for this. Or they may do something called a sealed bid decision, which is making a decision over how much care to provide, regardless of the amount of care their parent and their partner is providing. So um, we're trying to add to this by looking at whether the parents also respond directly to the state of their partner. So regardless of how their partner is behaving, um, since that might have uh, interesting implications. I think the general, so only a few studies have been done on this and the general consensus at the moment is that they respond to both the state and the behaviour of their partner, but we just want to further prove this and look at different aspects of state that haven't been done before. Oh, excellent. I'm surprised how much of it just seems to apply not just past the very beautiful, but to towards, uh, you said, by parental care, any mm. model I can think of. Is burying beetle the model species for this sort of behaviour? I... So it's not a model species in the sort of like the classic sense, I suppose, that we're all familiar with those. What is a model species? I've mentioned it without explaining what it is. I'll let you guys do that. So yeah, I guess it's just one of those um, species that most scientists would be familiar with, but there's that sort of convenience and history and depth of knowledge behind them. So um, you're talking about things like what Drosophila melanogaster, C. elegans, like very sort of archetype models that are easy to work with in the lab. Um, and I suppose the bearing beetle that we work on is has all the benefits of, of those model systems. Like there, there is the convenience of using them. We do have a huge amount of knowledge behind them and they're great for answering the questions that we're interested in. They're just less familiar to the public, I guess, in that sense. Yeah. Um, I'd say the more commonly studied things, as I've already mentioned, are birds. I think like majority of studies are done on various 
bird species. So this is providing a not new aspect because people have been studying bearing beetles for a while, but mm -hmm. relatively new in terms of the amount of research being done on the species. Okay. Do you think your work is going to help make the burying beetle something scientists investigate in the future? I wouldn't say that we're the, the, the leading force in this. There are plenty of other labs that are doing a lot of things with the burying beetles. I think their value has kind of already been yeah. noted before us. We're just sort of capitalizing on that sort of growing interest <laughs> yeah. and growing understanding of what we can really do with these beetles. Because that's, that's kind of part of the fun of working with them is you can do so much with them. We work on parental care and state, but there are like we said, Kenan is working on ageing, there are other labs looking at speciation and local adaptation, it all sort of roots around this, this beetle. Um, so there's a lot that can happen with it, and I think people, are, people aren't people uh, are oblivious to that, I think. Okay, excellent. I mean, don't talk yourselves down, I mean, everyone is just a grain of sand on the dune of science, like, <laughs> it all adds up. So I wouldn't, you are still on that wave, and you're still providing research and expertise on this. So I wouldn't knock yourselves down that much. <laughs> Yeah, so Drosophila you mentioned earlier uh, was actually studied by Charlotte Urbeck here at the University of Edinburgh. We have a short story on one of our, in one of our first episodes on the podcast about that. Uh, she observed mutation in Drosophila the flies from chemicals. That was the first time that was known. So in World War I, they didn't know the chemicals they used would cause mutation and damage, but she proved that. And that was here at the University of Edinburgh. So that's a nice little link. And uh, the other one, C. Elgans. Yes. There was a bit of a Twitter furore about that, as far as I remember. Yeah, there was, wasn't there? What side are you on? So, if I'm remembering this correctly, wasn't it that they had, they'd said that there was nothing else to be studied from them, and there was no yeah. point really continuing those experiments, which I thought was a bit of a, a ridiculous note, because yeah. I mean, it's kind of just disregards the entire history of what we've learned from them, and to say like, what was it never say never, right? Just because we <laughs> think we figured it all out doesn't mean that there's no point in continuing to use it as a, as a model. Yeah, I'm not sure I'm overly aware of this you. I think saying that research is done with a specific animal is never true. And, um, like, it just doesn't seem to... There never seems to be an end, so I highly doubt that. Yeah, so the was the right word. People were losing their minds. <laughs> I mean, a lot of it just seemed to be one hate, as far as I could tell. Yes, I, it was a specific strain, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 I, I, I can't really remember it too. Well, this is quite a year or two ago by now. I remember drama. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I remember the time, yeah, Twitter was going wild over this thing. Not sure I was even on Twitter yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's for the best. Stay <laughs> off it. <laughs> I heard from you about uh, state dependence, uh, how you research applied parental care. Is that what your work considers as well? Yeah, so um, I probably couldn't have answered that better. I don't have much to add. Um, <laughs> the, I suppose, yeah, it's, it just sort of goes back to that root question. The two main things that there are to worry about in, in life history, really, is that you have... Uh, want to be individually surviving so that you can produce offspring and you also want to be producing best quality offspring and those two things are pretty antagonistic that's why we see such a uh, diversity of parental care strategies and um, the bearing beetles have just kind of rooted on by parental care and we're trying to tease that apart as Georgia was saying um, with whether that's uh, bearing depending on behaviors or state and we're looking at that sort of integration between the two. Oh, excellent. Uh, have you found anything so far, like any unexpected responses to stresses that you wouldn't have otherwise thought of would happen? I have to think about that. I So some of my work I've found so far that they do seem to have a bit of a, a negative response to the competitors that I'm introducing, so blowflies and things like that. Um, they don't like them being around. It does seem to uh, reduce the quality of offspring they're uh, producing and also reduces the uh, increases the amount of care that they're providing. So. There is something going on there, but this is sort of all preliminary work that still needs a bit of uh, 
looking into, kind of deciphering. Yeah, same with malnutrition. I've kind of, I've only just analysed the data, so I'm not confident enough to say what it means yet. But there <laughs> definitely seems to be some stuff going on with them responding to um, the state of their partner and whether they're malnourished or not. So I think there's something there. I just don't know exactly what it is yet. <laughs> okay, and you're looking to how do you quantify? So you quantify these by looking at the amount of lava, the size of the parents, the size of the lava itself. Um, also, like. I think I remember seeing, so I, I know you guys from a poster session from a few weeks ago. Lovely posters, by the way. Well done. <laughs> inspiring young PhD students. <laughs> um, I saw from your posters about you're measuring a physical aspect. So are you looking at epigenetics as well of the beetle you're looking at? So. I'm not. No, no, I'm not either. We both, most of our work focuses on behavioral observations. So when we tend to um, give the parents an experimental brood and then approximately 24 hours will do behavioral observations which involves um, instantaneous sampling every one minute for 30 minutes looking for behaviors like um, maintaining the carcass so spreading antimicrobials on the carcass, carcass to keep it fresh uh, food provisioning the larvae so mouth-to-mouth -mouth contact um, feeding from the carcass which isn't a parental care behavior but it's something the beetles spend a lot of time doing <laughs> Um, so stuff like that. And then we also, as you said, focus on the um, physical outcomes of how these things affect the larvae and also the parents themselves. Um, but yeah, as I'm not doing anything with genetics, I don't think you are either. No, I haven't. I think I did. Uh, I think there is some remit to look into it. Uh, but I know there's also some previous work. It's just not something I think either of us over overly familiar with not particularly no uh, i mean you're speaking to a chemist here so i'm not familiar <laughs> with it either uh, do you see your work heading in the direction at all or where do you see your research going in the next few years before you finish your phds i highly doubt it will go the genetic route for me because that's just not what i have a primary interest in um so i think it's just going to continue looking at varying aspects of state and that every i found every time i finish a project it throws up way more questions than it answers <laughs> So I think Good. just continuing to like follow those will end up um, being what I'm doing most of the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly the same. Every new answer is a question, just opening the door there. Um, so like, yeah, I, I, I swore I was only going to do one experiment with flies. <laughs> I've recently started a new one. I'm sure there'll be another one coming in a couple of weeks or something like that. There's always just something new to look into because... But that's what we're doing we're trying to find out why and then why again and then why again there's so many options kind of spoiled for choice on the yeah. experiment front <laughs> which is funny because once you start you sort of look at the system you think so much work has been done on this how yeah. am i going to think of anything that anyone's gonna like say that's a bit of original research that's something different but the more you work with them the more you think wow i really need to explore this in a bit more detail yeah. excellent it's a sign you're onto something i mean i do spend a lot of time looking at the ceiling wondering why but, uh... <laughs> don't we all yeah. <laughs> okay so i've got a few more practical questions then because working with beetles and uh, working with living organisms is something no one really gets hands-on practice with unless they're like dog or cat sized so uh what are the difficulties working with living beetles do you have to be watching it all the time do you have a camera and have any ever escaped um, they're actually pretty, they're pretty great to work with. I've worked with much more complicated animals. Um, they're very slow. You can leave the lid off a box for like an hour and the beetle won't really go anywhere. So um, we've had a few escapees, but no like big breakouts and they're easy to catch again if they go if they go rogue. <laughs> Do you have to feel like a health and safety form if there's a beetle accident or something like that? 
Um, well, we there are always health and safety forms involved in lab work, so yeah. yes, those have been filled out. But um, <laughs> no, we don't. I don't think we've ever had anything leave the lab, so it's never been a problem particularly. Also, they're local beetles, so local, although, they have a Scottish accent. <laughs> yeah. So, um, like, I wouldn't be that worried about them escaping. Obviously, we would never let that be a situation, but yeah. um, they're all around the place, so at least they're not like an invasive species or something like that. Yeah, and they're not genetically modified either, are they? No. Not in what we do, no. Okay. So, we, so on the podcast before, we've had genetically modified animals. Our first uh, ever guest, uh, Lisa Heron, worked with uh, modified chicken ovens to produce human proteins in uh, egg whites. But those animals who had to be destroyed, they had to have approval from the Home Office. Wow. And that is all quite a lot of bureaucracy, even just to get to the step of working the animal, let alone disposable and everything. But you guys don't have to do any of that. No, I mean, we do have to, obviously, biological hazards, we have to deal with those uh, properly, so we, those go in the biological waste stream, but no sort of uh, Home Office uh, or anything like that uh, licenses. But no, we, I mean, we collect them up in Blackford, that's where they live. Yeah, so, literally around the corner. <laughs> very local. Yeah. How much of your time do you spend collecting beetles? Um, so it's sort of like an influx of new genetic diversity every year. There'll be a, a field season where you just bring some in, because we maintain them in the lab, but obviously after you've bred them amongst themselves for a year, you want to just bump those numbers up a bit. Yeah. Sounds like a lovely, sounds like you made that into a nice uh, school activity, school outreach day, collecting beetles for science. <laughs> I mean, it's not that pleasant. It involves a lot of rotting chicken and salmon and mice, and sometimes ah. they get so bad you can't tell the difference between the rotting chicken, salmon and mice. <laughs> So not not that kid friendly. The local dogs <laughs> enjoy it though. I think. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, the things my dogs eat, and I don't want to think about. As <laughs> uh, so you've got quite a strong stomach and quite a strong nose, then because you said you work around carrion, dying, uh, rotting carcasses. Do you have to provide those as well when you're doing work with model species? Oh yeah, non-model yeah. species. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I mean, every day we're de- sort of looking at a mouse in some form of decomposition. Um, yeah. Some of our observations will take place sort of like different time points through that. And it's honestly the, the worst phase is maybe like two or three days post. You wouldn't think that, but that's, I think, once everything gets bad. Yeah. Although I would give them some credit. Like, the beetles are surprisingly good at keeping it nice and clean, I think. So it doesn't yeah. smell as bad as it could. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Are, are the mice you use grown or raised specifically for that purpose? Or is it like when you feed snakes and you just get frozen mice in a bag? Yeah, we get frozen mice in a bag. They come from some <laughs> supplier. Um, yeah. We also take hand-me-downs from other labs, which is quite nice. It feels like recycling, so the malaria lab will give us mice and also... Um, Without malaria? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and also another lab working on like um, wild mice will get um, supplies from them as well. Okay. Good, that's efficient recycling. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I remember the frozen mice thing because we had a pet snake in school, so that the mice, teacher just kept a bag of mice next to the bag and dropped one in during class if she got bored. Oh yeah, we have freezers of them. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So uh, where do you guys see your careers going in evolutionary biology? Like, do we want to work in academia? And is there an industry job in this field? Ah, oh, that's a good question. If there's an industry job in this field, I would love to know about it. <laughs> I'm unaware of one at the moment that directly relates to animal behaviour. Um, but in terms of where I'm thinking of going with this, I'm a little bit undecided. So academia is definitely something I'm considering, but I'm also considering more um, something along the lines of public outreach or um, science communication, since that's something I also really enjoy. Okay. Yeah, um... 
I don't honestly I can't really say I, <laughs> I've still got another two years working in this lab and then we'll see what goes from there um, I mean I've been in the university academic system now for the past what, eight years so it's kind of all I know um, <laughs> I, I don't know how that's going to go in the future will I branch into some form of uh, industry I, I couldn't tell you I'm enjoying what I'm doing right now. I think that's about all as much as I can say. Honestly, to say you can enjoy your work is really important to PhD, so that's good. <laughs> I've met a lot of burnt out people even in second year, so <laughs> well done still. <laughs> okay, excellent. I think that's all the questions I have based on your research. I just have a few more questions to you, if that's okay. But thank you for the lovely insight into, the, into beetles and research into evolutionary biology, something I've never heard about until I saw your posters. <laughs> Uh, okay, so first question, first dumb question. Have you seen the film Beetlejuice? <laughs> no, I actually yeah. haven't. <laughs> That's it, we probably should. <laughs> we should do a lab activity yeah. and then sit down and watch Beetlejuice. <laughs> okay, good, because the title of this episode is Beetlejuices. So yeah, so uh, just I suppose the Beetlejuices, if, you're, if that's the name of the title, the Beetles do actually have these juices that they use as part of how they prepare the carcasses and they prevent them from sort of like decomposing at the normal rate. Um, they call them anal exudates. They're just like these secretions from the bottom of the beetle, well, from the anal secretions, basically. I don't need to explain that, I don't think. <laughs> um, and they'll just sort of like coat the, the carcass in these sort of anal exudates. I keep saying anal exudates because I don't think I have a better word for it. Liquid. Liquid. <laughs> this liquid. And it's sort of, it'll coat, the, um, it'll coat the mouse. It's got antimicrobial properties. It's got preserving properties. It's I don't think um, I don't know much about it, but it's, uh, it's, to it's my knowledge, there has been some work on looking at medicinal properties to do with it because it's a antimicrobial substance. But I don't know enough about it to speak in detail about where that's gone. But it'd be pretty cool if it was used for something like that. Yeah, yeah so this is how they keep the car the carcasses fresh, though. Because you mentioned yeah. they smell they smell surprisingly nice, or they don't look as bad as I wouldn't would. say nice. <laughs> <laughs> is this to prevent competition then to a? Yeah, multi sort of faceted sort of uses. I, I think as well there's some so competition, preventing competition, preservation as well. I think it also has there's some small amount of research into its uh, sort of like anti predator defenses because um, they're aposomatic beetles, which means they have bright warning colorations. And I think there's something about these anal secretions with which correlates with that coloration that's sort of signaling to birds and whatnot who might think they're a tasty snack that actually no. Um, I'm not worth eating. Oh. Uh, I think there's something about that, but I couldn't talk about it in too much detail. Uh, does anything eat them? Again, because of the sort of dis the aposomatic tendencies, I don't think much really goes for them. Uh, if they do, they quickly regret it. Yeah. <laughs> so probably more things are going for the carcass, and they just happen to be on it. Yeah. I, I imagine. Yeah, opportunistic scavenging. Yeah. I was gonna say I've seen a, I've seen videos of bear grills eating maggots out of a corpse before, so Ooh. I don't think he'd love eating a beetle. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure they'd be a great candidate for that. <laughs> I wouldn't. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, what are you guys passionate about outside the lab? Because as PhDs, you're, you can be totally focused on your research, but I find that for my sanity, I need something else to be looking at as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, so kind of already mentioned, but on like the science -y route, but outside of the lab, I like doing public engagement stuff. So um, Casey and I both work on a podcast called the Animal Behaviour Podcast, so we contribute to uh, various aspects of that. Yes. Um, and also I work as a STEM ambassador, so I go around schools a lot and talk about beetles and gross out a lot of children with <laughs> lovely mouse carcasses. I, saw, um, I thought they loved that. <laughs> It goes, it's either way, it's 50-50. The boys are normally keen. The girls are persuadable <laughs> if you pitch it in the right way. 
Um, but completely outside of science, I love baking. That's what I. That's my stress relief activity, and it ends in a cake. So it's the best. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so yeah, I mean, for me, it's just insect mania really I've just been looking at insects for so long that's kind of even I study them and then I go home and I look at them even more um other than that I like to kind of just get outside look at birds things like that it's, it's a bit of a busman's holiday really because <laughs> I, I leave the lab and I immediately go look for more but I don't know if you enjoy something I, I stick with it oh no you actually should my supervisor has a butterfly uh passion so he goes on holidays hunts butterflies he just takes pictures of butterflies and sends everyone in the lab a powerpoint of the butterfly butterflies he saw yeah, our supervisor is pretty similar, but with beetles <laughs> and, <laughs> moth, and moth traps. Yeah, moth that's true. Got a nice moth trap going. We always get like very nice pictures and get to ID them, so yeah. it's fun. Variety yeah. of animals. Yeah, <laughs> it's insect hunting is a good one. People yeah. should do more. People should do it. Yeah. I I can't handle things with more than four legs, so well, not a fan. I was gonna say I find baking lovely. I find fantastic, but it's a bit too close to my actual work, oh. especially organic chemistry, which I've done from time to time. Okay. And I've had an absolute bake down before when just everything's gone wrong. So I've done a fudge at the wrong temperature and just... So as much as I love it, sometimes it is a bit too much. To Makes work. the stress worse. <laughs> yeah. Excellent. Um, so what's the name of this podcast? You So the Animal Behaviour Podcast. Yes. Do you have a link to that? Um, sure. Uh, Animal Behaviour Pod on Twitter, I suppose. Um, yeah, I think just type it into Google. Sorry, I'm not doing a good... Uh, <laughs> I'm not doing a good plug here. Um, it's yeah, something we work on sort of behind the scenes. We're not... Uh, we don't speak in it or interview no. any guests or anything like that, but it's it's a bit of fun. You get to hear um, animal behavior researchers from all over the world, really, just sort of having a, a conversation about their research and academic life. Excellent. So this is your first podcast experience? For me, yes. Yeah, me definitely. <laughs> ah, excellent. Well, I hope you get guys get some more in the future because you'd be lovely guests. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. Anyway, I think that's all I have for you today. Thank you both for your time and your insight into EvBioStudy. Thank you as well, dear listeners. Please follow our podcast wherever you can. Look for Biopod Edinburgh on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Goodbye.